Hello and welcome to Words in a Time of Lockdown, a podcast from the writer's block Cornwall, exploring creativity and creative writing in a time of change. The writer's block is the creative writing centre for Cornwall and I'm Polly Roberts, a writer and member of the writer's block team. We hope you find some inspiration in what you hear. In today's podcast, I'm speaking with Claire Owen, the author of YA novel Z and the Cormorants, along with Sophie Eldred, the voice of the audiobook. Claire is a writer and actor living in Cornwall. Z and the Cormorants is her first YA novel, published by Arachne Press, April 2021. Sophie is best known for her role as Ace in Doctor Who. She has since performed in West End, been a voice artist for TV and audiobooks, and presented television shows. Hi Claire and hi Sophie. This is the first time we've got two people on the podcast so really great to have you along. Thank you both for agreeing to come along. It's a pleasure. Mm, It's lovely to be here. We're here namely because Claire has released her first book Zed and the Cormorants. Claire I'm really curious straight away diving into how was it to release a book during lockdown. It's it's been a mad time to to release your first books I'm guessing you haven't had much in-person input from that no not yet I've done a couple of um well I've done one schools event which was a little bit strange because everybody was in bubbles and it was a whole of year eight trying to tie the, the book into their studies of the gothic um but when I arrived they were because they were all in these separate bubbles sort of you know, set around this gymnasium, which was very loud and echoey, and and they couldn't really, they were all behind masks, um, so I couldn't really hear them. But I was walking around with a crackly microphone, so that was that was a bit um, logistically challenging. Gosh, yeah. um, but frankly, I was just grateful. You know, we'd already delayed a year because it was meant to come out last um, April, so oh, wow. we set the date. And when it came to the launch, we realised it would have to be online you know at least we everybody's had a bit of practice at that now so I think it was good to have left it that year because people are much more sort of you know keen to to come along to those sort of things and it was easier to run it as well gosh that must have been crazy though a year ago kind of thinking if we leave this a year we probably will be able to get it and then a year later and oh my gosh no it's still exactly. going to all be online. I mean, the years, it's time has just, it's so elastic this year, isn't it? And and when you look back at what you were doing, say, sort of 14, 15 months ago, it does seem like an entirely different world. Mm. Yeah, wow, gosh, what a huge thing. And Sophie, I mean, it must have been quite a different year for you as well. I I was talking to Claire a bit about the rise of people wanting to listen to things rather than just read how we've kind of all got quite tired of screens during the lockdown and during this last year where everything's moved online I wonder is your work because you've done a lot of audiobooks so you are the reader for Zed and the Cormorants on the audiobook have you found that you've had a lot more audiobook work coming out this year? There's been a fair bit of it and I'm very glad that right near the beginning of lockdown I thought to myself Shall I buy a microphone? Shall I spend that money? Will I ever get that money back? You know, because it, it was like, we didn't know, did we? It may have lasted two weeks. And it, and I'm so glad I did. And um, and then I was looking for somewhere around the house where it would be good for recording. And somebody had once told me that my um, airing cupboard had a very good ambiance. <laughs> so um, 
So, so I went in there and I kind of um, did a couple of tests with my microphone. It's tiny with these towels piled up and sheets and everything. And then I put some, um, we used to get deliveries from a food delivery company and they put this sort of wool layer on top. So I put that, that all behind me as well. And I've made this little studio, which my son very cleverly called the on-airing cupboard. Um, <laughs> and it's stood me in great stead. Yeah, so I, occasionally I can be found, you know, in my cupboard um, recording a book. And everybody has to keep very quiet and can't go up the stairs, no toilet flushing, all that. That's amazing. Do you know, I've just been reading a book by Glennon Doyle where she actually talks about climbing into her cupboard in order to be able to hear her thoughts and so <laughs> I actually really like this idea of escaping into your cupboard away from it all, where you actually can't hear anything else from the outside world. I had a cupboard under the stairs when I was um, I lived in a flat in London many years ago and I was sharing it with a boyfriend and he paid sort of one and a half times the rent that I did so that he could have the the spare bedroom as his study and um, when we moved in, I, I opened this cupboard under the stairs and I thought, I, I can make a study in here. And I put a little <laughs> shelf in and I had a little stool and it was wonderful because it was completely quiet. And when people mm. came to sort of bang on the door or make deliveries or anything else, you know, they would never know that I was there. So actually mm. I was interrupted far less and I, I quite miss my cupboard. <laughs> Maybe we all need a little cupboard for our creativity to hibernate in we can disappear I don't what Virginia space. Woolf meant when she said a room for one's own I think she imagined something a little bit more spacious but there you go but a little room a room in itself is something uh, yeah, so indeed. I'm really interested in the fact that you, you both are actors and um I wonder Claire how was it for you when you first heard that your book was going to come to life through an audio book did that kind of mean something to you the idea of the characters coming to life in that voiced way yeah I mean it was lovely to to think that somebody else would would voice it yeah I mean years ago I did um uh some audiobook narration which was for a bar well for a series of Barbara Carton novels actually I fell off I was in a, a show in the West End and I fell off the stage and damaged my back so I couldn't go to work and someone involved in the company or someone in the company um, was involved in this project. So I went to this recording studio in Soho every day where they were obviously used to having really cool bands. And I'd sort of, you know, rock up and start reading these Barbara Cartlands. And they would sit behind the screen <laughs> just falling about with laughter because they'd never heard anything <laughs> like it. So it was hard. To, there was an awful lot of stopping and starting to sort of get rid of the giggles um mm. but other than that I've never done any audiobooks and and it's I know from friends that do it it is a very specific uh skill and just because you act it doesn't mean you can do audiobooks it's it's very very different so I'm uh very appreciative that someone who is an expert took on Zed for me mm. is, is it was it something new for you Sophie to kind of adapt to audiobooks from because obviously initially you were acting on screen and TV presenting. And so that switch to audiobooks, was that something quite big for you? Um, I've always read out loud. I used to read out loud to my brother and do all the voices. And in fact, he would beg me to stop sometimes because I'd just go <laughs> on and on. Um, <laughs> um, and then I just, I don't know, I started doing voiceovers and I guess when I was presenting things like words and pictures, we did do stories. I did Jack and Nori. So it wasn't sort of, 
it was and and I would use auto cue as well so it wasn't that much of a, a stretch to then turn it into audiobooks and then when I had my first son who's now 21 I sort of gradually tailed off doing the telly and did more and more books and voiceover right. work um and I've done the odd um telly and theater stuff but um yeah I, I don't know I think it was a sort of a a, a felt like a very natural progression. I do think audiobooks are the most challenging work that an actor can do, I think, in many ways. Um, mm. I mean, that's probably uh, putting people, you know, doing Shakespeare down. But, <laughs> you, know, you are performing on your own if you're, you know, for six, seven hours a day and you're doing all the voices, you're doing all the parts, you're doing, you're having to remember what voice is which, you're having, it's a real challenge to do. That um, for me would be the, the the switching between the different voices, I think would be mm. the real challenge. Um, I mean, I was never brilliant at accents, but if I fully immersed myself in an accent, I, you know, I, I'd have to work at it. It wasn't, I wasn't brilliant at it. I'd have to really, really work at it. Um, but the idea of sort of doing Liverpudley in one minute and Cornish the next would be a disaster, I think, mm. for me. The most difficult I've ever done was um, doing Sylvester McCoy in a Doctor Who book who played my doctor, who's got this Scottish accent, but he's very hard to do. In fact, um, John Culshaw, who's a, a, a friend of mine and, and of Sylvester's, even he can't do him. And he does, you know, he does brilliant voices he's in dead ringers for goodness sake he can't do Sylvester and I'm always picked to do Sylvester's voice and I had to do Sylvester's voice and then the other main character was Irish and uh so I was swapping between Scottish and Irish um and I had to (laughs) there were several occasions where I (laughs) I had to go before the Irish I'd I'd just have to go poor editor Copperty, 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 <laughs> and then and then I'd do the line, and then I'd go Scottish, Scottish before the Sylvester's <laughs> line, and the poor editor had to cut out this copperty, copperty, and this Scottish. The tricks that you have to come up with. I mean, it's really interesting. It strikes me two two things strike me from that. One being how hard it must be to actually perform without an audience present. Like you say, you're performing for hours in a day, and you've not even got that audience to ride off of, and I mean, that strikes me also as being fairly similar in writing. There's this strange thing where you're writing and you're not getting the feedback for months and months, actually. And yet you're still having to really absorb yourself into that that person and those people, those places and believe that you're doing well enough. <laughs> and Yeah, it's it's a difficult thing, I imagine. And, and also, I'm wondering, Sophie, do, do you find that have are you a big reader does that reading and that interest in diving into people's worlds for a longer period of time does that help you in wanting to embody these characters in the voice in the audio it was a real joy to read this one I I just loved it and the all the characters are so beautifully real you know really fleshed out so well and really, that's that as an as an audiobook reader. That's what you 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 long for just the char- characters that hop off the page. Mm. And I mean, I could see every sentence, you know, because I as I'm reading, I'm it's like reading a, a book anyway, but I'm imagining it in my in my head. So yeah, it was it was great 
it was a gift to me. That really fascinates me because I know, Claire, you said to me about how your acting skills kind of come in to your writing in character and actually character is the most important part to you that you, you start off by acting the character and embodying the character and then you bring that onto the page so I, I imagine that really carried through into yeah the character then leaping off the page for Sophie can you tell me a bit more about that process for you Claire yeah I think it's it's fairly instinctive um but I think if you have spent you know certainly the early part of your career which I did starting with somebody else's words and breathing life into them um I think when I sit down to write I first of all I think I often just intuitively have a kind of five-act structure in terms of all oh, I've written a couple of other novels which still need some work but they are there is definitely this kind of obvious structure mm. which you know when you read books like uh, what's the Sean Coyne one the 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 story grid and they always go on about this but I think if you have worked on a lot of plays that's that comes to you quite naturally um and I I do plan a little bit in terms of I know where I need to end up but the bit that I really really focus on in the early stages of of writing is is really really getting to know my characters because then then they can kind of lead you and they'll lead you in different ways. And that's kind of where the magic happens. You, you've still got this kind of end end place in mind, but they will often take you off to places that, that you didn't necessarily anticipate if they are well enough developed before you actually begin. Mm. So I definitely, um, I definitely use techniques that probably come from a rehearsal room. You know, I will find... I'll find the right shoes. It's interesting. I went up to London a couple of weeks ago to walk around a bit in, of the novel I'm writing now is all set in in North Kensington and around Grenfell Tower and Portobello and all those kind of areas. And I made sure that I had the right shoes as as I might well have done in a rehearsal space if I was devising a character or or, or, or sort of finding my own way into a well-known character. Because I think it was really important that when I walked around and experienced those places in London, I, I kind of did it in character almost, mm. um, and I often, I often kind of really think about the physical things. I think about the contents of a handbag. You know, I think handbags are fascinating because they're always documents, especially if yours is like mine, which is just filled with, you know, food wrappers and receipts, and you can tell so much and, and what someone's reading and and what trains they've been on and yeah, what they had for breakfast. Um, so I quite often think in terms of sort of handbags or or I'll go shopping and I'll if you know I've been writing in the morning and then I have to pop into you know Tesco's or something I will often think about what my character would buy maybe for just some of that um that sort of uh, walking around the aisles of the supermarket so I I do definitely embody it and I also it was interesting Sophie saying about reading aloud I read everything aloud and when I write scenes mm. which involve a lot of dialogue I usually write them first and foremost like a play script so there'll be no he said she said there'll be no description it will literally allow I will allow the characters to speak for themselves the whole conversation will happen and then I'll go back in a in a second draft and kind of fill in all the other stuff so it's very very character led and I'm sure that does come from a from a, a background of, of sort of theatre. That's so interesting I mean I, I just love the thought that actually it's so important to you, it, it literally coming to life, that parts of the way of the process are you bringing it to life and then returning it 
to the page and and that's something that also I'm curious about with you Sophie I know you've actually written a book yourself and so so you've got this character that you're extremely famous for having played now Ace in Doctor Who and you have ended up writing a book continuing that story is that something that being part of that character for so long did was there still that urge to take it further take it somewhere else put her in a different form yeah I mean I you know I'm not a writer like Claire's a writer first and foremost I um uh, I collaborated on the book with two other writers who are very experienced but I definitely like the character of Ace is somebody once asked me at a convention how much of you is Ace and how much mm. of Ace is you and it's like gosh what would I have been like now if I hadn't played that character for well most of my life now you know um yes. I've uh, because obviously there's it, uh, can she continues on in audio form with plays with the um there's a company called Big Finish who publish CDs there's all sorts of ways that Ace has lived on after the TV series and I'm constantly going to conventions and things so it's a very interesting question so when it came to writing the character of Ace she was I knew exactly who she'd be right now you know because it's like writing the up-to-date version because I've kind of I've lived I've lived her in a way and also hearing fans and what they imagined she would be doing now and you know so yes it's not it's all it's kind of cheating in a way because it's all there it's kind of uh it's already oh, there it's fascinating mm. I mean it's it's interesting I I wonder if you found any of Ace and Zed because when I was reading I actually felt like hmm, there are parallels here and I, I thought maybe it's quite appropriate that Sophie was the one gifted to read this I, I don't know if you saw that Claire did you feel like uh no it, that never occurred to me um but I have to admit that I'm not a massive sort of Doctor Who. You know, I've I've I, I certainly saw the the kind of series that was on when we were children because everybody watched Doctor Who. There was no alternative <laughs> on at that time. Yeah. Um, so I'm much more familiar with those kind of early ones than I am mm. with the more recent. Um, so I do remember Ace, but I I I don't think I knew her well enough to to think ah. Sophie is the perfect. <laughs> oh. I just I was just told that that Sophie was doing it by my publisher, and I said, "Great, you know, that's amazing." I wonder if, because um, Cherry, who um, is the publisher, yeah. um, we met a few years ago doing a community opera together, and she and she knew she knows the character base. So I wonder whether that was in the back of her mm. mind as well. But I think. Z I think Zed and Amy together probably are because yes. Zed hasn't got that kind of bolshy side that Ace has, but Amy has, you know. Yeah, um, so that she somewhere sits in between the two. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I can really see that being the kind of mix. And I I do wonder if that was in Cherry's mind. And Claire, how how much do you see yourself in, in the characters in, in Amy or in Zed? Um not that much really I mean in terms of circumstance I mean obviously I moved well it's not obvious but I did move to Cornwall uh 15 years ago but I was an adult and it was very much my choice whereas for for um Zed in the book she's 14 and she has this whole fresh start kind of thrust upon her 
against her will, really, but she goes along with it because she understands how important it is for her mum's mental health, mainly, and also to get her her kind of heller of a sister, Amy, back on, on the rails. So she's definitely at the start of the book putting everybody else's needs before her own and not very good at voicing her own needs um and 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 what she she the support she needs from her family she certainly doesn't get um and I think everybody remembers that sense of not having your needs fully met as a teenager at some point or, or certainly a lot of people do um and I did change schools when I was a similar age to Zed and, and different cities as well. And I moved from living with my mum to living with my father and my stepmother. So it was quite a big wrench. So I suppose some of that feeds into it. But I didn't have the issues around anxiety and the panic attacks and all those sort of things that, that Zed has. I think I just kind of yeah. knuckled down and got on with it. Not not That's not to say it wasn't difficult, but... Um, I was very good at putting on a front and just going out and being big and bold yeah. and brave in a way that, that she isn't at the start of the book. Um, so I, I'm very different to her from that point of view. Um, and Amy, no, I, I would have quite liked to have been that bold <laughs> teenager, but I was just a bit, a bit of a sort of swatty girl, really. Um, I sort of secretly admire people like that. And actually Amy's got lots of, really good points even though she's pretty stroppy at the start she definitely kind of comes into into her own and and the relationship between the sisters I was really keen that that would really develop during the course of the book and and also that that although the book is very focused on Zed and how she copes with this situation it was really important that that Amy was also three-dimensional and she's also on a journey um and that that was fully explored as well but I think I'd probably would have always secretly wanted to be friends with Amy, but probably wasn't quite cool enough, maybe. <laughs> That's the great opportunity about writing, though, isn't it? You can write out characters that you might be fascinated in or you'd like to spend a bit of time with. You can, you can actually spend time with them on the page. And, and yeah, I, I really love that relationship between the sisters. I have a sister myself and it felt very familiar. It's a very special and interesting, complex bond. And I thought you captured that really well I'm glad you raised the the kind of mental health issues that come into the book because yeah you you were saying to me actually I thought it was really interesting this idea that audio books and podcasts and things that audio stories things that grew quite large during the lockdowns of the last year were potentially helping aid a loneliness that was also growing and spreading because you you literally have someone's voice in your ear keeping you company as you're walking, as you're doing your dishes, as you're at home on your own. And I wonder for you, was this quite an important issue that you wanted to bring into the book or or what kind of brought you to having panic yeah. attacks and anxiety? Um, well, it's interesting. The I mean, I, I think it's hard to write anything these days that if you're writing about people truly and honestly, there's always going to be some aspect of their mental health that you have to consider. So I don't think I would ever write something without not really engaging in in that and um, particularly um if you're writing for young people um i mean when i started i the the kind of vague idea in my head was when i moved the the book is all set in a on a sort of fictionalized version of the foy estuary 
um, which is where I I live. So I know the woods very well and, and I know this area very well. And I had this... I'm very comfortable here. I love it. You know, we chose to buy a house here. But I, I remember walking in the woods um, when we'd only been here for a few, probably a couple of months and thinking, gosh, if you had come from the city and and you weren't used to having this amount of really kind of wild nature on your doorstep, you know, for me, it's a wonderful kind of place to kind of clear your head and, and engage in the natural world and all those kind of things. But actually, if you're already battling loneliness um anxiety then then it would be totally overwhelming and yeah. and that was the sort of starting point trying to put someone in this environment who who was struggling already and and ha- seeing how they would respond to it so i suppose the starting point was uh, a, a kind of young woman who's who's struggling um and that felt important to write i'm not entirely sure why other than i've worked you know, I've worked and come across a lot of young people. I worked as an education enabler. I've done lots of theatre projects. I've got my own teenage children. And and I do think it's a really tough time to grow up. And I think a lot of, um, I think social media adds a whole new pressure uh, to young people that we we didn't have to deal with when, when we were younger. And I suppose in, my children weren't teenagers quite at that point, but I suppose I was kind of exploring and prepping a little bit subconsciously for that as well mm, yes yeah that must play a big part in it all and I mean you've, you've mentioned the kind of emphasis on nature in in the book and that I mean it's interesting it's almost like that was the birthplace as well for the book was spending time in that particular area seeing that around you and, and it, it is quite a natural link actually I mean like you say can you avoid mental health can anybody avoid that being a part of who they are and so it's it's so integral as a character really to approach that aspect too of a personality and and the the part nature plays that's also something that's being discussed a lot nature and mental health and the benefit well particularly after lockdown I mean in some ways this actually delaying a year it suddenly made some of the the topics around this but I mean the everyone joking about but everyone making their own sourdough bread and you know this this family are artisan yes. bakers so all the sort of discussion about that kind of stuff became very relevant it's true yeah and I think the the nature thing I mean for me I can't see a better you've kind of got the space when when people are out in the natural world to to really explore the link as well between kind of personal trauma in people's lives and environmental trauma and actually talking about kind of characters slightly taking over I didn't set out with necessarily a particularly environmental message in mind but Tamsin because she's this quite sort of um um feisty uh kind of beach cleaner and everything else that Mm. came through very strongly and I think as I was writing it I was exploring that idea that um, the natural world is very much a barometer often or, or the way you respond to the natural world is a barometer for your for your own mental health sometimes mm. and your own levels of anxiety how much you're able to be kind of really present and enjoy it or how much you've got so much going on that, that you can't connect to it and certainly the anxiety that Zed fears which is sort of manifested in these birds is very much um an anxiety that actually comes from other parts of her life. And by writing a book that was on the one hand, quite a kind of gritty family drama, um, but on the other hand, 
had a kind of foot in the camp of of myth and mythology and magic and 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 all the the stuff around these birds that that came from kind of mythology from all around the world yeah. i was able to explore fear and anxiety on on two different levels and negotiate that kind of hinterland between fear and anxiety via a gothic lens or through a gothic lens and the very relatable anxieties that that teenagers have and by kind of playing out the two stories in parallel you can see that the the um the way that zed learns to kind of problem solve um face her fear and 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 kind of work with it but still act and the self-confidence and the empowering kind of um well certainly how that empowers her they're all sort of strategies and skills that she can bring to her new circumstances to sort of making friends and starting a new school and and being honest with her parents about who she is and what she needs and all of those things so it gave me um a kind of broader canvas if you like in which to explore anxiety yeah I can really see that now when you're you're talking about it it's it's very beautifully done in the book it's actually quite subtle I mean it's not subtle the themes are very clear but that purposefulness doesn't come across what comes across just is this multifaceted layer of the themes and I think you're right that depth really comes from there being place in nature to explore that and in place and in scene as well as through the characters and and there are so many different characters with different lives and complexities going on in those lives all interplaying with one another so Sophie how about you how is nature playing a part in your life because you you're in are you living in London is that right you've had quite a different year we moved out of London Ah. we went we came we went from um Ladywell which is Lewisham southeast London to um Hertfordshire leafy Hertfordshire oh wow I mean when I tell you that our road is called Featherbed Lane (laughs) it kind of paints a picture yeah so we've we've gone from a view of you know the rooftops of of Lewisham to um fields and trees so yeah nature plays a huge part in in my life and um I'm a and also I was sort of half brought up in Norfolk as well and so I'm very uh beaches are a big thing I remember the oil spills of the 70s you know and the the birds the the oily birds um then and um and even now you know I, I I walk up and down the lanes with uh plastic bag every now and again and oh, so we did that all this well. sort of oh. mcdonald's packaging and the and the crisp packets and things in my in my bag there's a lovely elderly couple who live around here they they do that as well so yeah I, and i'm i've i would say yeah the environment is hugely my my eldest son actually he's at university studying um energy engineering and sustainability oh, wow. so yeah it's kind of a big part of our lives mm. um so yeah this was another appeal about the book I I thought and I thought I thought with Tamsin and her gang um it was so right that because that is the kind of thing that young people in a way are much more immersed in that world than people of our age and you know sort of because it's their future isn't it they're the ones they're the ones who've got to do something about it which is why it's really interesting also to explore this idea that actually if you have kind of self-respect and 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 sort of self-love or if you're kind to yourself that is automatically linked into or has to be kind of totally 
um, involved in in caring for your environment as well. Mm. And that's that's you know something that I explored a lot in the book. Um, and, and making peace with the natural world and finding a way to live in harmony with it is 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 very much tied in with making peace with your yourself and your circumstances. Mm. And you really see that play out in Cornwall, I think, more than you would um, certainly in, in a city where people may still have very strong um, opinions, which is great, and be, and be you know really keen on on kind of the environmental message. You kind of see it in people's everyday lives down here and the choices yes. they make. And, and and as you say, like picking up litter. My son went out with a, a friend of his on, on the kayak on the river the other day, and they were gone for hours. And I was beginning to get really quite twitchy. And you start having that conversation with yourself, going, "Well, they they can swim and they're sensible." And they were gone for hours, but the reason was they'd kind of pulled the kayak over to the side of the river and found all this litter, and then spent the next sort of two hours packing up the boat with all these bits of plastic and bottles oh, wow. and empty cans that they they bought home and um wow wow you know he got he, he got some extra time on minecraft that night <laughs> <laughs> deserved it after all that it, did did you find that for you when you moved down to Cornwall that that changed for you as well then that you you started kind of feeling more connected to that and because Cornwall does seem to play quite a part in this book like you say the place is very much based on that foy estuary and, and the place names feel very familiar and the nature, the descriptions, is is that quite important? Yeah, I mean, the, the names are all very closely, I mean, so that Tremelin, that the little hamlet I live in is called Milltown and Tre means sort of homestead in Cornish and Melin is Mill and so they are very closely linked. Yeah, I mean, in some ways it was kind of a love letter to, to, to where I live as well. Um, um, because it there is something really magical about this little hamlet. And in fact, um, I discovered when we looked around the house that Joan Aiken, the children's writer, lived here in the 1950s. And she also um, wrote a couple of books. One, one kind of quite early, quite patchy, but very funny thriller, um, which is called The Ribs of Death, which ends up with this amazing a chase along a viaduct with some kind of leopard, this wild leopard. Um, but in later books, there are little things like there's a post box in the wall, which we've got at the end of the garden. And when I kind of realised this connection, I got in contact with her daughter who runs the, the Joan Aiken estate and she shared lots of letters and bits of diaries. And it's it was really interesting seeing the parallels of someone that moved here with a young family in the 1950s and was kind of working the land a bit and had chickens and was growing her own vegetables and also doing B&B. And I do Airbnb uh, to, to make the time and, and, and to be able to afford to take, you know, take a little bit of time off to write so it was it was very interesting seeing that you know 70 years apart we were kind of doing exactly the same thing but equally had been really inspired by the place where we live so it's not just giving us the space to write but it's also really influencing Mm, what what we both interesting that parallels can kind of be picked Um, up all that time apart I think nature sometimes can have that influence in in terms of it is timeless in itself isn't it it's it's quite different to society and civilization where yeah the ideas can maybe change but in some ways the natural world can still move us and I mean I can read pieces of literature from a long long time ago and if it's based in nature I I mean you know you still relate to a very human element of literature too no matter how old it is but there is something in that but then it's interesting that you 
Sophie raised the fact that I think it was you that that people maybe the more current generations are responding quite differently and and Claire I wonder does having children has that influenced your work like you wanting to write a YA book and and you being aware that these issues might be a little bit more important or prevalent to that age I think I've certainly uh having as I said worked either kind of via educational theatre projects or things I, I think the characters that I met along the way although not, none of the characters that I've written are, are based on anyone in particular they're all certainly lots of these um, young people I've met along the way and uh, have kind of really inspired uh, Zed and Tamsin um, and Denzel as well um, yeah so so that's true um I'm just thinking about what you just said about uh, nature and the sort of universality of it as well and the, the fact that it doesn't change because I suppose the other thing that really inspired me when I was thinking about how to how to sort of structure this book and, and how to find a way into it was cormorants and obviously it's called Zed and the Cormorants and, and I was out walking uh, when I had this idea about this this young, this girl and struggling with anxiety and I saw these two birds with their wings outstretched in that very kind of iconic way they have where they look like coat hangers and I remember thinking gosh I'm looking at them as a kind of fairly comfortable adult Mm. thinking aren't they poised aren't they graceful but but how would they seem to someone that was coming to it from a place of fear and you suddenly realize how sinister with with that kind of filter how sinister they are and I, I went off and started researching them and 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 I was amazed at how much they have obviously inspired people in literature oh, wow. from from kind of the year dot. I mean, they're mentioned in the Odyssey. They're mentioned, I think, four times in the Bible. Uh, Shakespeare mentions them. But they're always, Milton as well, but they're always getting quite a bad press. In the Bible, they're unclean. In Milton, um, Satan disguises himself as a cormorant, devising death to them that lived. Um so there was part of me thinking, well, gosh, these these birds are are really inspiring people, and have done for years. But I want to mm. slightly redress the balance and kind of look at look at the other side because they're amazing. I mean, they're so adaptable. Uh, the fact that they're kind of on every um, continent in the world, and they've been around since the dinosaurs, and e- even in their sort of environments where they are, you know, one minute they're a bird, and, and then they're diving. I think in some parts of the world they can dive 45 meters down to get fish so they are kind of swimming better than the the fish you know to get their to get their supper and um and I thought there's a lot that this character Zed can learn from that you know this idea about how you adapt how you you know how you survive um so so part of it was also kind of paying homage or or, or kind of recognizing all the all the stuff in literature and mythology as well and Denzel is a character who really can can kind of wax lyrical about, about the yes. Norwegian myths and the Polynesian myths and and you know the Chinese and the Japanese and everything else. But it was also about recognizing that that we need to find a bit of balance here. The cormorants should get <laughs> some good press. Ultimately, even if at the start of the book they are kind of um, something to be afraid of. I love this idea that yeah, you could kind of dig deeper and deeper into this creature from this one experience of yourself looking at it with those fresh eyes, and then suddenly, hang on a second, there's this whole wealth behind it. Well, the other thing that was really interesting because obviously I was I was looking at these birds on this particular river when I started researching 
cormorants in Cornwall, I discovered that in um, in 1910 or 1911, I think it was, County Hall offered a, a shilling for every cormorant head because they thought they were interfering with the fishermen's catch. And it was only in 1929 when um, someone actually cut open a cormorant and analysed the stomachs, did they realise there was nothing in there that was marketable. But at that stage, 10,000 birds had been decapitated. So in terms of my sort of narrative and my story, that gave me a real incentive for these birds to potentially seek revenge on the um, on the sort of human community that that was kind of living alongside them. So it very definitely then had to root that story in Cornwall. Mm, I'm getting the real impression that you're a kind of story hunter, that that seeing things and getting inspired by them and kind of drawing narratives and taking wanting to take it further and understand it more, that this kind of writerly way seems quite inherent in how you look and respond to the world. I wonder when you were acting were you were you already writing when you were living in London and acting or was writing something that's kind of you've discovered later um I definitely wrote a lot as a child and certainly when I was acting I used to write quite a lot of audition monologues for myself because I couldn't find what I was looking for um so I and I kind of I played around and I I I kind of you know when you devise a show and then you write it down you, you've sort of half written it but so is everyone else in the cast so there was there was lots of kind of collaborative projects I mean the first novel that I wrote which is you know luckily in a drawer somewhere or a metaphorical drawer it's on a memory stick um and it will probably never see the light of day um was was probably in my late 20s and then I wrote another kind of middle grade novel that that a slightly kind of Unfortunately, this kind of central idea, unless I completely rework that, has become a little bit out, outdated now um, because of the, the kind of development of sort of VR headsets and things. But it was all to do with uploading memories onto, mm. a, onto a computer for this, this girl who had been bereaved and, and had no memories of her father and had these, these five photographs. But actually, that's not such a ridiculous idea anymore with sort of Second Life and all those things. So that one has kind of got parked as well. So I had two two kind of novels under my belt before writing this so I think I have been writing for a while but it's always fitting it in right. around life and work and yeah. family and you know all those kind of things but I do get very lost down the rabbit warren <sighs> of research because I, I I get really fascinated I'm, I'm doing it at the moment for something I'm writing now every day I sort of sit down to write and I think oh I'll just check this and you know two and a half hours later I kind of <laughs> think that was my writing morning gone and I know a lot more about you know whatever it is but I've written nothing so yeah it is a it's a it's a challenge to to know when you say right enough at least finish a draft you can always come back and fill in the gaps I, later. I love this thing of yeah trying to balance your creative life with your normal life and and then just the the being able to move between art forms really fascinates me I, I find a lot of people I speak to on this podcast but artists I just speak to in general have actually kind of had several art forms interplaying throughout their careers and and dipped in and out and found certain things that work for them more. And then, I don't know, Sophie, you, you've had such a varied career. Do, do you quite like to keep that variation or is that something, yeah, what, what kind of keeps you going and dipping and changing? Yeah, I, I, I think producers found it quite difficult to pin me down and say <laughs> oh 
Is she an actress? Oh, hang on a minute. She's playing the lead part in a West End musical. Oh, oh, she's presenting a children's programme. Oh, no, she's not. She's uh, she's doing this religious programme now up in Manchester. You know, so I and and I think that's the key, really, is like variety is the spice of life, isn't it? And and I love music as well. I, I've always sung. Um, so bringing that in as well, children's theatre, you know, just like done teaching um yeah yeah. so I yeah I I think it's very I think if you're creative I can see it in my younger son who is exploding with creativity he's he's really he's 18 and he's he's a very talented musicals guy he dances which I never did um wow sings and acts but also he's always making clothes or um you know drawing something amazing or took a friend down to the canal today in a, a sort of Elizabethan dress to take photos of her for oh, a project wow. that he's doing, you know. And I think I think that's the thing. I think creativity, we try and box it, don't we? We yes. say, well, are you an actress or are you a writer or are you a this or are you a that? But creativity is creativity. Absolutely. And they all feed off each other, don't they? The more, you know, and it's interesting, actually, when I right certainly in the very early stages I quite often I mean I'm not an artist at all but Mm. I will draw things not people because I I get into my people you know in the way that we've we've already discussed but if it's if it was a place or you know um I'm I'm writing something in the moment involves butterflies and actually I got my daughter's watercolors and, and I wouldn't share them but by drawing them or painting them you really see them it makes you see them and then then I can write mm. about it in words, but I often use different forms to kind of find my way into in, into finding yes. the words to describe it. And, and and that thing about really seeing something, sometimes you need to try tr- to try and recreate it in a different way. Um, certainly early on in 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 writing projects for me, and then it helps me kind of clarify what I'm drawn to and what what does really interest me and. And what actually, after a little while, you realise is, is is not the route you need to go because I can't get excited about trying to sort of engage with it via any other yeah, creative I, I form. Yeah, I think that's so true. It's it's interesting because I definitely was a bit like your son, Sophia. When I was growing up, I was interested in so many different art forms. And I, I didn't really question it because they each kind of worked for a different part of me. And actually, I think you're right, Claire, in, in terms of they were each feeding into one another, helping the other one improve. So by looking at the world through the lens of a camera, I gained a quite a different perspective that allowed me to write a scene a bit more uniquely, let's say, rather than just seeing it in the same way. And yet mm. it's so fed to us, well, what are you going to be? Which I, I got very frustrated at that when it came to choosing university which university are you going to go for for which art form which one do you pick and and I had such a determination I could keep them all up but of course life goes on and and it's hard to keep every art playing I'm wondering about your kind of average creative day so yeah I mean starting with you Claire if if you are managing to slip some creativity into your day what what does that look like how does that fit in and how does that go the only way I can guarantee it, and the, certainly when my kids were younger, is getting up at five in the morning because I would just wake up. You know, there's never a dishwasher to empty. Well, there might be, but I'm not going to 
pay any attention to it. You know, there's no emails, there's no phone calls, there's no mum, where's my gym kit? Uh, you, I would have, you know, two and a half, yeah, two and a half, nearly three hours probably when they were young to to just write. And if I could get a good chunk done then, then you're kind of in the zone. So then you can go off and do other things and come back. If I don't get something done in the morning, then I often by kind of midday one o'clock I, I have kind of given up on that as a writing day so what I will do is cram in all the chores tax returns you know cabin changeovers the Airbnb everything that I can that afternoon to clear the decks then for the the following day so no day is ever the same um, but I don't have a kind of I must write a thousand words today because you know there are days when I, I go off and do kind of role play jobs and I might be leaving at 6 30 in the morning and I won't be back till you know seven eight at night so there's no way that I'm going to fit in a thousand words then and I'm not going to beat myself up over it so you know every day is different really I sort of fantasize about you know the idea that one day you'd sort of go off on one of these amazing retreats and that's all I would do but I suspect I don't know I think if I put myself in that situation where suddenly all I could do is write after a few days I'd want to sort of I'd certainly want to go out exploring mm. and walking. I mean, I don't know how people go off to places like Crete to write because you think, well, <laughs> if I'm in Crete, you know, there's so much to explore. Why would I sit in my room? It's funny, I was listening to a, a podcast with Grace Dent recently and she said when she knows she's got to get a certain number of words done, she goes and books into a premiere inn because she knows oh, yes. she won't be distracted by any sort of interesting restaurants or anything. Um, there is literally nothing to do other than get her laptop out <laughs> and bang out the words. And I thought I sort of, I think that that's quite extreme. I might find that a, a little bit depressing, but I, I, I do relate that's to some of that. That's such a good point. Yes. I mean, I, I've quite often gone off for a, a month house sitting in a different country to, to isolate myself and be able to do that writing. But there is something quite strange about going somewhere and, and not exploring. And if you've got that kind of urge and thirst normally, then, yeah, it's, hang on a second, how how can I just sit inside and write all this time? So I think you have to do it first. You have to you have to do it at five. It's done by 10, and then you can go out on a sort of 20-mile oh. <laughs> stomp in the afternoon. Does that work with you too, Sophie? What's your kind of average creative day look like? Oh, goodness. As Claire was saying, there's never an average day. It'll always be something different. And I suppose I'm so used to that because that's how my whole career's gone. You know, I could be doing one thing one day and one the next. But I think, I don't know, my my creativity is slightly different to yours because yours writing is, um, you know, as I found out, is a more sort of solitary um, affair. And I love communication. You know, I mm. love being with people and I love so... Um, I mean, you know, I'm chair of a charity of a Steiner school, a Steiner school, and you know, so I that that's creative at the moment. You know, working out um, what we've got to do there, and then I do a lot of. Um, I'm training to be a, a seminar leader in a personal development company, and so that's oh, wow. that takes up a lot of my time as well. And then I'll be maybe prepping a book for a bit, or. Um, or even going in the garden, doing a bit of gardening. I mean, that's creative too, isn't it? Yes. It's really. Um, or and I sports as well. I do I do running, or I I've I've discovered this dance form called Nia. I never danced when I was younger, and I found that I love dancing. I absolutely oh. love it. So, I do a class three times a week, and and then in lockdown, I started playing the piano again. I used to hate playing the piano when I was younger, and I thought 
maybe I should give it a go. And I started and I I do 10 minutes minimum a day. I've been doing that since last November, I think. And um, and I always end up doing sort of, you know, half an hour or more. Um, So that's that's been great for no reason. But I think I think if you I think everybody is creative. It's just Mm. like it's just different Mm. forms of creativity, isn't it? Creativity can be I mean, you can be creative doing the housework, I think, in many ways. I love that. That's really nice. When you're talking, I'm really picturing, actually, hang on a second. I could just move through every moment of my life and view it each as a different creative task. And and I felt very peaceful when you were saying that. I was thinking, oh, okay, that's that's Uh nice. I can connect to that. That can be a positive way. I I think it's a sort of, it's more of a way of being, isn't it? If you, if you kind of, if you create it that way for yourself that, you know, rather than what you have to do, which we're all driven to do as human beings. Yeah. It's weird because we're called human beings, aren't we? But we all end up doing. But yes, yeah, the, the being part of being a human being is, I think creativity is a part of that. Yeah, no, that's. I think that's really interesting. Yeah, definitely. Point. And I, I've, I'm fascinated then with them um, because <laughs> I find... Well, I've often talked to people, to friends about how I I would like to be able to live in a way where those tasks are more your being than doing, like you say. So I think things like doing the garden, even when you're doing a full time job, it's this task suddenly that you're trying to do in between things rather than something that's part of your everyday being. But the thing that most for me takes me out of the being is technology. So I find it really really Mm. difficult to maintain that creative attitude when I'm working with technology and and I'm really aware that both of you have kind of had to take on technology into your art form so Claire you were talking to me about starting to use the program Scrivener for your writing yeah I'm probably only using it at about three percent of what it actually (laughs) is capable of because it is I've done the, the, the the first tutorial about four times and my brain just doesn't work that way um but my handwriting is so dire that actually I you know when when I do I mean if I hit a block or sometimes when I'm thinking about a particular scene I will write long form but then when I come back to it I spend 20 minutes trying to decipher you know what I was um what I was writing and I think I edit a lot as I go along and so I'm constantly crossing out rewriting crossing out as I'm writing it so it just becomes such a mess that I, I and I did learn to touch type years ago. Actually, um, I remember my dad saying when I finished my A levels, he said it will be useful. And of course, every part of me bristled, thinking I will never need touch type. But actually, he was right. <laughs> um, so I can type quite fast, and obviously, I can edit at the same time. So I have written my last two novels just on Microsoft Word. But I do get to the stage where I have to print them all out, and I'm literally on my hands and knees with a kind of print stick and glue, trying to move scenes around. And I thought this is this is ridiculous. If I can just get my head around some software where I can kind of do it on a cork board or, or have, yeah. you know, character lines, particularly since what I'm writing at the moment has, has a sort of dual narrative. Um, I still live in utter fear that I will accidentally wipe the entire thing. <laughs> so I'm constantly sort of backing it up into, even though it's on a cloud, I also have it in Word documents and things because it doesn't come naturally to me. But I'm, I agree that it's, there is something about it that kind of shuts off or can very easily shut off the creative part of your brain. So I, I, 
and I think that's when things like the, the sketching or the drawing or the mind maps mm. or all those kind of things, I have to keep feeding them in. And also I have to, I can't sit and write for hours. So I will sit at the laptop and then that's where the gardening comes in. I will then run outside and do something really right. physical for 40 minutes, whether it's just moving earth or, you know, digging a trench or whatever. And then I'll come back in and do some more writing because I find my energy levels if I stare at the screen yeah. for too long. And I'm sure you must get that, Sophie, when you're recording. I mean, I just sort of, I crash and burn very quickly if I don't keep getting up and moving around. Mm. Yes, it's very easy to get stuck, isn't it, once you're in front of a screen. But I don't know, I, I kind yeah. of, I think I think it's different with reading a book, though, because that's a creative process. Because, I, you know, I, I'm, as I was saying before, I, I'm, I'm seeing the scenes so I'm it's almost like mm. being in a show or a or a film because I'm putting myself in the book so and it's that engagement that probably keeps you totally focused yes. whereas I think for me certainly if I write a scene I mean I all everything that I ever write I read aloud I have to read it aloud to hear it I can't read mm. it on the screen so whenever I've written and I'm very aware of trees and paper and everything else but I can't I just can't see if something's working on a screen. I have to print it out and I have to hold the paper in my hand and I have to read it aloud. And then I know instantly why it's not working. Well, I don't always, but, you know, that's the that's the, the, the aim. Uh, I, I, I often know very quickly why something's not working, what needs work on. But while it's it's in front of me on a, on a screen, I just... There's, it's like some kind of film just comes like some two cataracts they just kind of come across you know and I just can't it's everything's woolly I, I, I just can't so I can get it I can get it out there but in order to then engage with it further I need to print it out yeah and read it out oh I'm definitely the same but do you write your poem do you write everything long form then Polly do you write everything in books pretty much everything I've written is so uh, my first novel that I wrote I the entire thing was written longhand and then I had to painstakingly type it all up but I actually find it really helpful because the type in the typing up it's the chance to edit so I get yeah. that first edit done in a slightly more it's a little bit what you're saying about the engagement it's a slightly more interactive edit for me than just mm. reading through and I I get much more troubled when it then comes to the edits where it's all on a computer and that's where I do what you do Claire and I print it all off and cut bits up and yeah. draw lines over it and I'm sure it must take yeah. a much longer time to do it that way but it's the only way that I can find and also what you were saying about being in a different country and wanting to explore it's really important to me to get to be outside as much as possible yeah and the writing process takes so long that whatever way I can to be able to do that work outside is really important to me you go and write outside in the garden or or wherever yes yes or in the woods. so I I will write most of the work originates when I'm out on walks or out sitting somewhere outside and then the editing I mean I'm well known to trying to drag a computer outside and again the touch typing that's where it comes in handy because I can't see the screen but at least I can yeah. keep touch typing <laughs> and everyone's going oh Polly I think you need to come inside it's much more sensible and I, yeah. no, I can't do that. <laughs> I have this sort of fantasy of a uh, um a, a writing room in in somewhere in my garden where one side of it is entirely glass yes. so I am inside and I do have things plugged in and all the rest of it but I can feel it's a sort of indoor outdoor space I could cheat and pretend I'm outside 
but I can still, as you say, see the screen and, and stay dry. That's the Virginia Woolf's dream room of one's own. That really is. That <laughs> definitely beats the cupboard on the stairs. That's better than the airing cupboard, yes. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you two, it's been such a pleasure to speak with you. We've come to the end of our time, though I feel like, gosh, I could talk to you two about art for ages. And it's it's really lovely when I think about it, actually, and I reflect on what we've ended up talking about it it's quite telling the fact that we're coming together with all these different art forms and having you two coming at one piece of writing but from two different directions kind of really helps bring all of that full circle of experience with it so thank you so much for coming along and Claire do tell us where we can get the book and where we can find the audiobook well, all the usual places. Um, I mean, I, I would obviously encourage everybody to try and buy it from a local bookshop, um, particularly if it's here in Cornwall. So I know various ones are stocking it. I can't list them all. But if they're not, you know, you can just order it in via whichever your local bookshop is and and the audiobook um, in all the same places as well. Pretty much everywhere, I think, if you ask for it, they can get it in for you if they haven't got it in already. So try your local bookshop for Zed and the Cormorant. Definitely try that first, without a doubt, yeah. And if you need someone in your ear, I can't recommend Sophie Moore for listening to the audiobook of Zed and the Cormorant as well. I just wanted to say one more thing, actually, about the actual production of the book, because I think it's such a beautiful book to hold. I mean, I've got it right here with me now, and, you know, it just looks so good. And then there's the um, Denzel, who's this amazing character in the book, um, he writes, uh, he, it, there's a book within a book which is beautifully illustrated as well. So, yes. you know, it, it's it's like, it's a treat to actually have the book in your hands. You know, I, I really, and I like the feel of it, the size of it. You know, it's really mm. important to me how books look and how they feel. Yes. So. Yeah, it's a physical experience, isn't it? And you're right, there is that beautiful melding of art forms even in the book itself. When you're talking about drawing the butterflies earlier, Claire, I was thinking of Denzel's drawings that are included in your book well they're by a wonderful illustrator who happens to to live near me but I'd not met her before called Sally Atkins who really rose to the challenge of of not just illustrating a Norwegian myth but but illustrating the interior of Denzel's mind because you know I wanted her to draw with his hands and, and she did that and then the little origami chapter headings are drawn by my stepfather and then the cover design by Clara Smith is all um, paper cuts that are then photographed with shadows. And yeah, it's stunning. And and Cherry and I worked really hard on, on getting those three elements all, all to, to work together. And yeah, no, I'm pleased with it as well. Oh, yeah, beautiful. really pleased with it. Thank you. Well, thank you both. And hopefully speak to you again sometime. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. That's it for this season of Words in a Time of Lockdown. We'll be back in September for a brand new season, starting with a very special guest, the Writer's Block patron, one and only, Sir Tim Rice. You've been listening to Words in a Time of Lockdown from the Writer's Block Cornwall. Music and sound by Jimmy Marshall of southwestsonic.com.